This is the MG Car Club Podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this, our 10th MG Car Club Podcast, we talk to Master Mechanic, one half of Wheeler Dealers and MG Man, and Anstead. Plus, Adam and I fiercely debate MG Concept Cars. Also news of new MG Car Club merchandise. Hiya, Wayne Scott here on, amazingly, episode 10 of the MG Car Club podcast. Hope you're well. Welcome along. Adam Sloman's here with me as well. Hi, Adam. Hi, Wayne. Amazing, Adam. We've made it to episode 10. Can you believe it? They've not stopped us doing this yet. I know. I can't quite believe that we've reached double figures. That's uh, quite an achievement, isn't it? It's been fantastic and loads of great feedback coming in from the MG Car Club members and from the wider world as well, and not just from the UK, from across the globe. Yeah, it's brilliant to see all the messages coming in. It's um, it's really encouraging and it gives us um, plenty to talk about as we go forward. Well, originally we started this podcast just to help people keep in touch, really, and I suppose just to keep people entertained during the lockdown here in the UK as the coronavirus pandemic struck. It was something that we decided as the MG Car Club would be just a good bit of fun to keep everyone in touch, not just in the UK, but around the world, keeping MG fans together and just sharing some news and some thoughts and some fun around MG cars. And here we are on episode 10 and we're still having fun. Somehow, Adam, you and I are still finding stuff to talk about. (laughs) and uh, there's lots of people writing in saying how do you think up all this stuff that you keep talking about on this podcast well it's all in the mind of Adam basically and in the mind of me this is just because we're such massive MG fans isn't it exactly we are flying by the seat of our pants Um, yeah we're I mean it's just there's so much to talk about with MG and even despite the fact you know that so much has been disrupted this year because of the virus you know events have been cancelled there's still loads and loads for us to talk about and hopefully we're keeping lots of people entertained and over the last 10 episodes we've had some amazing interviews as well some fantastic stories that have come out we've talked to the MG Motor Manual manufacturer about the cars that they're making now we've talked to the president of the mg car club john day about his memories over so many years of mg car club membership we've talked to you dear listener listening in and sending us your messages and of course we started on episode one with that lovely story from uh, charlotte vowden about frisky the mga we've had a real variety of people on the podcast haven't we yeah, and that just to me shows the strength and depth of the MG Car Club and the MG community. There are so many different people with so many different stories. You know, I think we, you know, we've been doing this for for ten weeks now. I think the way things are, with the range of stories there are in the community, we could be doing this for another ten years. Oh, perish the thought! <laughs> Everyone's just turned off now. Oh, no, not another ten years of this. Crikey. <laughs> No, that's right. Absolutely. It's basically the star of the show is always our interview that comes in the second half of the podcast. We've got some really lovely interviews lined up for you over the coming weeks as well. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, if you haven't listened to episode one to nine yet, then you can do so at any point. They're all on the website for you at mgpodcast.uk. You can listen to them whenever and wherever you like, just whatever suits you. It's the MG Car Club podcast, episode 10 then, starting with your messages. And Lynn Marsh got in touch via the mgpodcast.uk website using the contact form on there. And Lynn Adam is the widow of Jem Marsh, whose son we spoke to, Chris Marsh, on episode 8 of the podcast. And he gave us that amazing story. If you haven't listened to it yet, it's a really good listen. We had a bit of a chat about the history of Marcos cars, where that car brand came from and where it went to and the stories around that from his family. But also Chris told us about his grandfather, Kenneth Marsh, who had broken this record on Beggar's Roost Hill Climb uh, in this MGM type in 1930. An incredible story. And I asked during that interview, and Chris didn't know the answer at the time, why it was that they did this 100 climbs of beggar's roost overnight well lynn marsh got in touch with us and she knows the answer to this she says i've just finished listening to the podcast with chris marsh about the beggar's roost uh, record with ken marsh's 100 runs i just thought you might like to know the reason it was a night run and that was because jem chris's dad was being christened the very next morning. 
And from what Jem told me, I think Ken got back to Bristol where the christening was taking place just in time. And Lynn says it was really nice to hear the story again on the MG Car Club podcast. But so now we know why, Adam, it was all through the night. It was because he had to get to his son's christening the next morning. That's <laughs> amazing. amazing. That's absolutely amazing. And I mean, I thought that was a brilliant interview. Um, really, really good stuff. And in- so interesting to find that there is an MG um, link in, in, in Marcos. I remember when I was sort of 15 or 16, there was a, a Marcos um, that used to scream around uh, Lyme Regis near where I grew up. And it was just, it just appeared to be the ultimate sort of hairy chested brute of a sports car. And to hear that that connection back to MG in the interview was, was brilliant. So yeah, really good stuff. It must have been a very bleary eyed christening is all I can imagine after you've been <laughs> yeah, doing 100 yeah. runs at Beggar's Roost <laughs> and then stumbled into the church for that christening i should think he was just about managing to keep his eyes open but a fantastic story and one that just keeps uh, giving more detail and more pleasure to us so we're uh, just an example of some of the stuff you've missed if you've not listened yet to the episodes of the mg car club podcast one through nine this is episode 10 and you are most welcome as is josh langstaff who got in touch to say uh, just a bit of a random question for you both that's you and me adam as I thought it would make for another great conversation on the podcast. Which prototype, out of all the ones that MG have developed, would you have liked to have been released to the public? For me, and this is Josh Langstaff talking here, it would have been either the MG EXE or the AR6 Midget. Now, I've got personal views on the AR6 Midget, which we'll come to in a minute. Uh, but he says really enjoying the podcast by the way great listening to it with a mug of tea whilst working on the car i've got this idyllic view of josh in like a kind of wooden shed listening to us with his brew on yeah with an mg in a state of disrepair i like it hopefully drinking tea from an mg mug maybe with a small pile of hobnobs next to the next to the tea just that little treat you know just to give you the energy to keep working good dunker is a hobnob absolutely but um, no, that's, that's a really interesting question because there have been some really cool MG concept cars that we've seen. Yeah, there's 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 more than than you think about because we sort of concept cars we kind of think of as a as a modern thing. But if you look back through MG's history, there's loads that go all the way back to to the 1940s. Well, that's where I'll start with mine, I think, because my first concept car shortlisted for our what should have gone into production list was the MG1500 Panoramica. That's what it was called, and I say it in that accent because it was actually designed by Zagato, amazing, who was became famous, of course, for those Aston Martin special-bodied cars. And it's quite an interesting story, actually. At the outbreak of the Second World War, he had to do a leg it, basically, and he was hiding at uh, Lake Maggiore, and he'd left his home in Milan. And while he had all this time on his hands, sort of in hiding, if you like, he developed some new cars and he worked on this concept that was basically to try and reinvent the way coachworks were being done after the war and i guess this kind of stemmed from the fact that metal and sheet steel in particular were in really short supply and that was set to last for some time after the war when he was developing these and so he came up with this new material called plexiglass and it just made him be able to design cars with a lot less weight so the first concept car and it's a pretty little thing actually we'll put a picture of it up with the podcast at mgpodcast.uk it's the mg1500 panoramica designed by zagato the very same man who did those aston martins he started with mg in 1948 so that's my first one. What are you going to go for, Adam? Well, you might say that you think it's a pretty little thing. I actually think it's a bit dumpy looking. Um, dumpy? Yeah, it's a bit It's a bit odd. It's a bit badly proportioned. Um, not, you know, I don't want any Zagato fans to, uh, to, to come and uh, be banging on the door in the middle of the night to, to drag me out and beat me. Um, right, but, OK. Um, if you're going to get controversial then, right, <laughs> let's get straight to it, shall we? Okay. Adam Sloman. Okay, OK. And let's talk about the MG Midget concept that was built on the AR6, the Austin AR6. And basically, this thing... I mean, it was a Honda Accord with the bum chopped off it or a Rover 400 from the 90s that had gone through some kind of horrible 
distortion after Chernobyl. That's how I'll describe this car, but you seem to quite like it. Wow. I think if you've got to look at it in context, you know, you look at the... It would have come out in the mid-'80s. Now, I'm I'm sure that uh, Road and Track or one of the American magazines, and hopefully one of our US listeners can can, uh, back me up on this, I'm sure that Road and Track took uh, something like a Honda CRX and built a one-off version of an MG, um, what would have been an MG Midget, on the on the Honda platform. Now, if you go back to the mid-80s, you look at a car like the Honda CRX, which was a cracking little bit of kit. You imagine that. Okay, I can, I can hear people crying um, no when I mention front-wheel drive and, and MG sports cars. But if you look at something like the CRX, that was a cracking little bit of kit. And that could have been a really cool little MG. And I, I don't think the um, the AR6 looks that bad. It's very square. It's very wedgy. But hey, it was the 1980s. Well, you know a concept is going to go wrong when the concept is based on another concept that also went wrong, which was, of course, the Austin AR6, which was supposed to replace the Metro, but they couldn't get that off the ground either. And no, I'm just not buying it. Fair play, it came out around the same time of the EXE, and it was all the brainchild of Roy Axe, who, as we know, we talked about this a couple of episodes ago on the MG Car Club podcast. He spearheaded the revival of MG during the 1980s. So I can see what they were trying to do, but in terms of actually putting it into production, no, it would have been slated. I don't think it would have been, because if you look at the cars that... that rover group were producing at the time um if you look at the work they were doing with honda you look at the the rover 200 from uh 1989 that, that r8 anyone says r8 to me you know most people think of audis anyone says r8 to me i think of a rover 200 but that's just the way my brain works <laughs> um i mean also at the same time and there's a fantastic story between the mazda mx5 and our next mg concept which gets my vote. Now, I've seen this car in the flesh, and you can too. It's in the British Motor Museum at Gaydon at the moment, and it's red, and you can see it up there in their kind of gallery of horrors, as I call it, and, and it's, on the, <laughs> it's on the floor above the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust collection. And um, if you walk towards the back, it was on the right-hand side. I don't know if they've moved them around. But this was the MG DR2, or PR5, And there's a story behind it that when the Mazda MX-5 was launched in 1989, Gordon Sked is reported to have said that he felt like crying when he saw Mazda's new car. Obviously because he felt that MG should have done it and that Mazda had muscled in on MG's natural market. And he was also really upset about the subsequent positive greeting that it got from the media. And everyone went nuts for the Mazda MX-5 when it came out, at a time when British Leyland and the Rover Group had convinced themselves no one wanted a sports car anymore. So, luckily though, they were allowed to develop something that, through a convoluted set of stories, would eventually become the MGF. And this on that route was one of those prototype cars that they developed and there's a funny story as to why the interior looks the way it does and if you see it again you'll notice that when you peer inside it is basically a tvr350i inside which in turn might i add has triumph tr7 switch gear (laughs) but let's not go there And um, uh, apparently the story goes that the engineering team visited a local TVR agent and they bought what they could get hold of, which was in the best possible example of a TVR 350i. But they stripped it and they used it as a donor car to basically pen what was to become eventually the MGF concept. What the intermediary stage ended up being was this MG DR2. And then you look at it, and the interior is very clearly TVR350i, and you can see where they butchered that TVR they bought from the local TVR dealership to put the interior in. You can see all of that. Apart from that, it looks kind of like a cross between Jaguar XJS at the back and kind of what the MGR V8 turned into as well, and it's a bit of a mad mix of stuff. It's worth going to have a look at. It's a great concept probably needed a lot of refinement before it would have gone into production but it's one for the shortlist the mg 
DR2. I it's, like it, Adam. It's big, though, isn't it? Like it it's, big. it's big it for an massive. MG. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a there's a really good book that um, David Knowles, who is a regular writer for um, MG Enthusiast, he's a Car Club member. Um, David Knowles wrote a long time ago now. It's quite hard to get hold of. Called uh, MG: The Untold Story. Mm. And in that book, there's a there's a lot of um, lot of info about uh, DR2. And I think in there it's described as something of a boulevard cruiser. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and you can imagine it like in 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 LA, you know those those big long boulevards in 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 the states. It's not really, it doesn't really seem in keeping with with sort of our winding, twisting B roads that you can hustle a, an MG midget or an MGB over. Um, yeah, it looks good. It's a good looking bit of kit. It's to me, it's very Jaguar. It's more Jaguar than MG. Um, but it would have been interesting to see what direction that would have taken MG in had they favoured that over RV8 or, or MGF. Yeah, I still think it's a very elegant looking concept and one with a bit of refinement that could have gone somewhere. But you've picked something else that's uh, slightly bit more up to date with the X80. I always thought the X80 looked a bit like a cross between a Aston Martin DB7 and a Vauxhall Monaro, really. And MG had bought this company called Qvale Group, who were building this car called the Mangusta in 2001. And that sort of came out of that, didn't it? Yeah, so MG were sort of full of, of full of beans, if you like, um, in the early 2000s, freed from BMW. Um, funnily enough, I've just been writing a big feature about this for, for Safety Fast. Um, and one of the things they wanted to do was, was immediately broaden uh, Rover Group, as it had been, uh, was broaden their product portfolio. So they looked to create a sports car that would sit above the MGF. Um, and they got hold of, of uh, the Mangusta. Um, and Peter Stevens was charged with creating a new body for it. And there's a lot of cues in there. Because don't forget, this car was revealed before the TF. There's a lot of styling cues in there that hint to what the TF would look like with the, with the grille, the headlights. Um, and there's other hints to MGA in there as well, some of the vents and that are designed to uh, evoke thoughts of the MGA. And That's it was, true, actually. Yeah. I never thought of that TF link until you mentioned that. Now looking at it, yeah, can you can see that. You yeah, can yeah. see that front end is, is very um, MGTF. Yeah. Um, and they rushed to get it ready for um, for the uh, motor show, the Frankfurt Motor Show in September 2001. So much so that the car was pulled out um, and painted too quickly. And when it arrived in Frankfurt, the model itself began to crack. So they had to get the girls on the stand to stand in particular places to hide the cracks in the bodywork. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and Brilliant. It, yeah, and it's funny. Cause <laughs> I've done that myself at car shows. Actually. <laughs> I've done that myself. Don't look here. That's that's a, just a, that's just a, a stone chip. You don't need to see that. It's a styling feature. Yeah, but um, but X eighty was a funny one because it it didn't didn't get the reception that MG Rover were hoping it it would get. It was it was kind of a bit of uh, underwhelming uh design really and then most of the news um from that motor show tragically was was overshadowed by the um terrorist attacks in new york because mm. the car was actually unveiled just a few hours before um everything unfolded in in the states so there was no real press no real news no real buzz about the car so it was quietly wheeled back to Longbridge. Peter Stevens set back to work again and, of course, came up with something that was a lot more uh, out there, shall we say, when, when he sat down and sketched what we actually got, which was the MGX Power SV. Which, yeah, I mean, it, that was a car that young boys put posters of on their bedroom walls. I don't think the X80 would have ever have fallen into that category to be fair i don't actually remember it when it was new probably because as you say it was overshadowed by things happening in the world at the time i remember my dad talking very excitedly about x80 um because anything mg related he was always all over and i can remember um a copy of safety fast coming through um and it being in safety fast and him talking um about buying one um to go along with uh, the bgt that i've now got um so yeah, i remember it from the day and remember looking at it and thinking yeah it's all right but it's nothing it's nothing to to sort of make you look back 
um, I always think a good indication of, of how how attractive a car is is if you can walk, lock it and walk away from it and you can't walk away from it without looking over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that X80 passes that test. And you mentioned MGB. That leads me on to my next concept car. And I'm going to go back to 1964 now where MG were in many ways emulating what Triumph were doing and that was combining the engineering prowess of rugged British sports cars with Italian design principles. And in early 1964, Abingdon were looking to replace or revise the MGB. It only took them to the 1980s before they finally got around to it. But in 1964, they were trying to do this. And one of the things they'd picked up on in customer feedback during the early 60s after the early launch of the MGB was quite a lot of disappointment with the way that the MGB handled, in particular, its rear suspension. And so they'd obviously gone to market with a live axle arrangement on the MGB that was quite basic. And by then, other independent rear suspensions were starting to be talked about in the market. By 1964, you'd had the launch of the Triumph TR4A with its independent rear suspension, of course. And they were starting to get a little twitchy that the MGB was getting left behind. So they looked at doing a concept with a hydroelastic rear suspension. And that concept was called EX234. Not only were they working on the suspension underneath... They were also looking at how they would update the design. And so they went and employed a designer by the name of Pininfarina, who, of course, designed so many famous cars. And it's no surprise, then, that this is a really beautiful-looking car. Now, it might not be as wild and as wacky as some of the other MG concepts throughout the years, but for me, this is as close to a production car as you could probably get and there is a real live version of this car still out there in the world it looks i'll I'll give it to you it does look a little bit like an alfa romeo spider at the front i'll admit that and there's a slight sort of feel of jensen healy about the rear quarters but i think that was a really pretty car and probably would have been a good idea for the mgb to maybe have moved through the 60s in design principles and just seen what would have happened i think it's a quite a pretty car so we're back to the 60s for my concept but you've got a very modern concept next haven't you which until we started talking about which concept cars we were going to discuss on this podcast i didn't think i'd even heard of it to be honest yeah so it's my uh, my pick is the is the mg icon from 2012 um now i actually thought this was a lot newer than that so i'm my mind's kind of blown to realize that it was eight years ago but um, the the icon was was unveiled at the Beijing Auto Show back in 2012, um, and it plays very heavily on the MGB, um, particularly MGB GT, and it's kind of a it's a compact crossover. So think sort of Nissan Duke size, Renault Capture size, um, MG ZS size, um, but with a big fat dollop of of nostalgia thrown into the mix it's got that very um mgb shape it's got a very mgb shaped grill to it um the rear profile is very mgb gt the front end looks like it's using um the sort of bmw mini style headlights because funnily enough no cars these days have round headlights the closest we get is that big oval that we get on things like the mini it's a cool looking bit of kit it does look like a sort of jacked up mini you could cut your finger on if you ran your hand over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, just going back to your pick of uh, EX234, I mean, I think that's a fantastic looking car. And I've always said that the MGB should have been MG's answer to the Porsche 911. It should have it should have evolved over time. It should have been continuously developed. Sadly, MG never had the budgets for that. It's fascinating to think what could have happened had uh, had MG been able to replace the B with a new MGB in 1964. And just think what those early MGBs would be worth now, even more than they are already. Mm, absolutely. And there's a really exciting car that we must talk about from the late 1960s. All sorts of crazy stuff was happening in the world in 1969. Concorde had its first flight. We broke the sound barrier in the passenger jet. If that wasn't crazy enough, man landed on the moon. And then, just to top it all off, the TR6 arrived from the UK and also the Ford Capri, all in 1969. Stuff was happening. 
Unfortunately, at MG, nothing was happening, except for a little bit of excitement in the concept car department because there was a designer who was working on a car called ADO 21. And it came about really out of the formation of BLMC in the year before where all the companies came together into a conglomerate. And the car that I was just talking about, EX234, had been consigned to history. That was finished. They really needed to start looking at something slightly more radical. So they began to work on a car representing what the design team, and I say the design team very carefully, thought would be the future of sports cars. And what they were judging as the barometer of the future of sports cars was, of course, the stuff that was coming out of Italy. And they were all mid-engined. And so this was a mid-engined concept for MG in 1969. Now, it sounds all very, very exotic until you realise that uh, the engine that they were using was an (laughs) E-series. which is about as exotic as you get, um, unfortunately. But it does just look like a Ferrari. And the guy who designed it was one Harris Mann, who became very famous for designing wedge-shaped cars. Let's talk about Austin Princesses for a minute and Triumph TR7s. The maxi engine's height meant that the rear deck of this mid-engine car was too high. So in order in the concept stage to make it look good, they had to put two buttresses that sort of come off the roof line to the back of the car so that kind of wrecks the back it kind of gives it like a wedge-shaped ferrari 308 look but then like a bread van look at the back (laughs) (laughs) things started to move in british leyland um they could never really get around the fact that the engine didn't fit furthermore of course the gear shift on an austin maxi had like a three link wire system on it And this concept car was using the same Austin Maxi gearbox for its Austin Maxi engine, and the three-link cable gear shift would have had to have run twice the length it would do in a Maxi to reach the engine and gearbox at the back of the car. God knows what the gear change would have been like. It would have been like using bicycle cables. So there were obviously going to be big problems. This concept car eventually became the Triumph Bullet, which of course then became the Triumph TR7. And I think that concept car there, the MG ADO 21, is responsible for the myth that the TR7 was always supposed to be the MGB replacement. The story goes that a full-size clay model of the Harris Mann and Paul Hughes ADO 21 was seen by management at the end of 1970, early 1971, by the time they got to this point, they spent the best part of two, nearly three years on this project, pumped a load of money in it. But Spen King, who was the Triumph man at the time, had gone to America and he discovered that in America, the market for sports cars was not sophisticated at all. They just wanted simple stuff. They wanted front-engined, rear-wheel drive, live-axle stuff. It didn't fit into the politics within British Leyland at the time, and it didn't fit into the policy that they'd formed out of Spen King's visit to America. It's such a shame. It is, it is. So I think what we're concluding here is, Adam, that the concept car that we really wish they'd put into production was the MG EXE. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, because none of the other concepts were really well-finished. But for me personally which one would i choose i think my vote has got to go with the mg ex234 the pin inferina mgb replacement that was designed in 1964 that's my vote for a car that mg should have put into production what do you think adam do you know what mate i i think i agree with you i've always had this thing and i've mentioned it to anyone who listened to me um that like i said the mgb should have been the car that evolved with mg all through the 60s through the 70s through the 80s uh through the 90s and now um yeah absolutely we could have had other mg sports cars along the way just the same as as porsche have more in their range than just the 911 but if that ex234 had come along and had to continue the development of of the main mg sports car then the the company wouldn't have been carried by mgb and mg midget for as long as it was so yeah i'd I'd plumb for uh for 234 as well mate right there it is then that answers our question from josh langstaff who asked us 
<laughs> which of the prototype cars it's a very long answer to your question there josh but uh, which of the prototype cars we would have liked mg to have developed we're both agreed on mg exe that kind of goes without saying but if not that one or if we had to choose another one apart from that one adam and i both agreed that the mg ex234 was the concept that mg should have made and now that we've got through that without falling out with each other, Adam, or having some massive row on the podcast, <laughs> I think we should have a rest and get to our first interview next. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centres and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at MGCC. .go.uk Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Well, next on the MG Car Club podcast, a very, very, very special guest all the way from America. Please welcome Anne Anstead. Hi, Ant. Yeah. Yeah. Good morning. How are you? How's everything over in Blighton? Very, very good, actually. We're all slogging on and doing the best we can, as everyone is doing all over the world at the moment. And uh, it's a funny time in America as well, isn't it? You're keeping safe over there, I trust. Yeah, it is kind of weird. It's uh, it's strange. I, I kind of feel like I live in this little bubble because I live in a, a part of America called Newport Beach, really coastal, really um, kind of lovely, and it all feels kind of like a bit of a fairy tale. But yesterday, um, the protests... Um, actually deliberately targeted Newport Beach. So Newport yesterday was filled with um, thousands of people marching the streets and police and army and you know it kind of brings it all home. Yeah I think we've had the free trial it's full of bugs we'll go back to the 2019 version if it's quite <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah but, but to be fair you know it's, it's kind of interesting isn't it my wife uh, she's got a big social media following she uh, she got so much criticism on for saying that you know that we are uh, you know kind of broken and um, yesterday she went on Instagram and just told the truth, gave it to people, stop lashing out, you know, stop, stop sending me hate. No, I don't know what the right thing to say is. I don't, I just, I don't know. I'm happy to listen. And if you want to tell me what the right thing to say is, um, but you know, what we do know is that the wrong thing is to say nothing. You literally have moved your whole life over there now, haven't you? It must have been an amazing sort of, I guess, a bit of turmoil, really, when you took on the Wheeler Dealers gig, because literally the world changed for you. Yeah, I mean, you can look at it in two ways. You can look at it in, uh, on one hand, professionally, and on the other hand, personally. Um, from a personal level, um, yeah, I mean, we're talking a complete life change. Three and a half years ago, um, you know, I moved my entire life here, my family, my, I left my friends, my business, my work, everything that I knew, and I landed 6,000 miles away in a completely foreign country, um, in a part of the world that I'd never lived before, I'd never experienced before. I had been to America before, but only um, New York and a, a bit of Monterey and a bit of Arizona, but I'd never, I'd never spent any time you know, properly in Southern California. So it was a big kind of leap of faith, and it was a big decision for me and my family um, and then career-wise, obviously, you know, we, I don't want to turn the clock back and talk about that period where everybody was sending death threats and hating and um, because, you know, it still goes on now and you think it's remarkable that, you know, four years later, it's still a conversation. So career-wise, it was a big decision, um, but I felt like, uh, you know, Wheeler Dealers has to continue. Mm. Ultimately, somebody has to step in and if nobody steps in, the, the show ends. So where does it stop? You know, do they, and it already, it was already in America. It already established itself in California. So does Mike go and get an American host? Does Mike go and uh, do it on his own? You know, what, what is the, uh, what are the options for this brand? So ultimately, you know, I kind of took it on as a personal vendetta. This is, the brand has to stay British. I am going to step in. We are going to keep it going um, because, you know, now, three and a half years later, you know, we're, we're, we're closing in on 18 years of that show and that's remarkable and that needs to be celebrated and, 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 and so career-wise, it was a big change, but lifestyle and, you know, life personally-wise, it was even bigger. You know, you touch on there the social media grief you had at the time when you took the job on and you and I know the car world very well and especially the classic car world. And it, it kind of was at a contrast against what we know to be true about the classic car world, all of that stuff on social media, because we are a global family 
of people with stuff in common and a global family of people that support each other. It was quite odd, really, to see all that unfold. Yeah, what I really love about this car sector is that ultimately strangers are friends just by that association. And I, I can think of countless times, and I'm sure you can too, and actually forums are a really good example of the love and passion that's shared between strangers. You know, if I'm looking for a rare part of a car, all I know, I know, all I need to do is drop it on a forum and there will be a team of volunteers out there searching for me, even to the point where somebody will find it, get in their car and drive it 100 miles to hand it over in person. And this is somebody I've never met. And that for me is the kind of the passion and the love side of the classic car community, is that we're all bound together by our love and passion of cars. And whether you love a Jaguar or an Aston or a Maxi, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, you are combined. And you know that's what makes car shows so special is that you can turn up with your classic, whatever it is, it can be in any condition, you can park it on a lawn next to a multi-million pound Ferrari or a 500 quid Maxi. And ultimately you guys are, you know, you are combined. There is DNA between you all. But the moment that that switched, you know, for me, I went from being, you know, relatively, uh, Kind of liked in the car world you know i was i was giving back and i was you know producing other shows and i was doing lots of car stuff and building cars from scratch and rest restoring cars and you know overnight literally it switched and then i i started to experience this this kind of wave of hatred but from the very same people you know it's an interesting insight into human behavior what is it there is something within the culture that we're living in today that makes people think it's okay to lash out and, you know, bear in mind, a lot of these people, they would never, ever, ever have the courage to say it to my face. They would never, you know, you've been to the NEC show, big show, and you know, 90,000 people over that weekend, and I've been hosting that show for years. And the very same people that are walking up to me and shaking my hand and saying hello are the same people that are, are trolling me on, on fake accounts. Okay. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's a shift in society. Something's changed. Social media has empowered people to lash out. The platform is now the therapist, isn't it? They like to, instead of sitting on a couch going, blah, 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 they can now go type, 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 type. And probably, you know, for them, it might be the same sort of cathartic release. I mean, in which case, great, it serves a purpose. But unfortunately, at the end of that, that phone or laptop or whatever, at the end of the uh, social media line is the person receiving it. You know, and I read these horrifying stories of, you know, young, particularly young people that get bullied online and you know, they take their own lives. That's how serious it, it, it can be. So, um, you know, there was a period when, you know, for nine months when I, I replaced Ed, uh, we hadn't made a show. So there was this huge void. Yeah. The press release went out, Ed's out, I'm in. And it physically, you know, we have to physically find a car, fix it, sell it, produce the show, edit it, add music, all that kind of nonsense. And that physically took nine months. So, you know, while the public are sitting there staring at this big empty hole, knowing that Wheeler Dealers has changed, they had various versions of events and ultimately the, the, the thing about human behavior is that there is a tendency to fill in the void with negativity. As soon as the show went out, you know, I'd like to think that I won a big chunk of that negative audience over. Well, you certainly won us over, Ant. You didn't need to, really, because we know you, because you are an MG man. I am! We know that your very, very first car was an MG midget, because we've been trying to find it for you, basically, for ages. Is this one of those shows where you go, and here we have Bridget? <laughs> no? Uh, well, I'd love to do that. Unfortunately, Bridget couldn't be with us tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, are we any closer to finding Bridget the midget? Was there any news? Bear in mind, I'm ex-police, so I, you know, I understand a little bit about investigations and there's times in the police where you get so close and then oh, it falls away. And it's been one of those, you know, for years now. I think I put a, I put a social media post out, I'm guessing possibly even five years ago. And I've reposted it a few times over the last few years. And I remember when I first put it out, um, somebody had located Bridget as a sawn. So which, and so as you know, that means that she's statutory off-road registered. So somebody's gone to the effort of annually saying Bridget's still alive, yeah. but she's not on the road, which to me means that she's currently in the care of someone, but not in a state to drive. So I expect her to be hidden in a garage somewhere or hidden in a barn. Well, the search continues. That sort of leads into asking you about where this love for cars came from all those years ago as a as a young guy with Bridget the Midget. Where did it all start for you? I've just written a children's book and it's called Petrol Head Parenting and it's a book to guide parents. How do you diagnose whether your child is a petrol head? Think of it as a 
as an illness and there is no cure. Once you are a petrolhead and you're captured as a kid, it will carry you forever. You know, and I speak to lots of adults of, um, uh, you know, lots of passionate car fans as adults and they all say the same thing. They all say, oh God, I can remember sitting in the back of my dad's car. Oh God, I can remember the first time I heard a V8. I can remember the first time I felt the feeling of speed or, you know, I can remember cornering for the first time or I remember going to my first race. And ultimately that moment as a kid, there is something about it and that's it. You've caught the bug. Mm. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's remarkable. So I caught the bug when I was very, very young. And I can remember being a, you know, a 10, 11, 12 year old kid building go-karts and throwing myself down hills. I can remember being about 14 and I, I walked to a local flea market and I bought a lawnmower and I dragged the lawnmower back and it was really heavy. And, you know, we're talking probably two and a half miles to my house. And I took the engine out and stuck it on a wooden pallet and created a wooden body out of a wardrobe. And I made, I never go running by the way, but I made this kind of, and I guess it was just kind of in me. And um, I built my first car, you know, before I had a license, before I was even 17. And um, I just guess it stuck with me. I always had this uh, love to understand how things work. In fact, it was kind of consuming. I would walk down the street and look at a streetlight or uh, the handle on a toilet door or the way a latch works and I still do it today I still like to kind of get my hands on stuff and see gosh how does that work oh that's interesting um so I think um I think it's just something that's either in you or it's not and before you ask my dad absolutely zero car influence no oh, really <laughs> none at all my granddad had a little bit lived in Cornwall and I lived in Cambridgeshire and Hertfordshire so I'd never had any sort of hands-on experience with my grandfather but he was a car builder um, but my dad couldn't change a wheel. So you really did discover it all of your own accord, as it were. A lot of people might still not know about you. You were, as you mentioned very briefly earlier, you were a policeman for all that time. So where, at what point did the hobby take over the job and how did you get to that point? What was the journey like? Yeah, and I, I, for those that don't know, I joined the police when I was 18 and a half. Um, and, you know, back then, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Ultimately, I... I never told my parents as well. I told my parents the night before I was packing myself to go to police training school residential. So I said, oh, by the way, I've joined the police and I'm going tomorrow to Coventry. Sorry, I didn't tell you. So as a 16, 17 year old, I was, start, I was starting to tinker with life-size cars, real cars. And then as a 17, 18 year old, I was now finding out I really was enjoying it. And actually I was making a bit of cash at it. My first car was a kit car, which I found quite easy to put together. And I was never obsessed with the driving, so I didn't keep that car long. I sold it and moved into something else. And then I started restoring, you know, I bought an MG, I did a lot of triumphs, I started to do lots of renovations and restorations. And then I got to a point where I'm like, this is a hobby and I'm enjoying it, but it's not a job. Hmm. So I joined the police. Um, and in the six years I was in the police, I worked out that shift work is actually really good if you're a car builder. Um, and even, you know, I had, at some point, I probably had 10 cars on the go. I was always building cars for the, the period in the police. And then in 2005, um, uh, I got involved in a very violent incident in the police and it gave me a kind of a re-look at the outlook about life. You know, I had this kind of realization. I just had my daughter. So I'm sort of holding a, a new baby. I was a young father. I was a member of the tactical firearms unit at the time. And all of a sudden, I just woke up one morning with this realization that life's too short, follow your passion, you need to um, do something that you love. And it was just so obvious to me, I loved cars. I very, very nearly rejoined the police probably six or seven times. I even refilled out my application to go, yeah, I'm gonna come back in. And I, I, I kept pulling it last minute because ultimately I stuck with it. And it was really, it was a tough sort of 12, 18 months for me because I was broke, proper broke, like so broke. I, I didn't pay my rent for six months. I, uh, I, I negotiated the, the rent of a cow shed for free if I converted it into a workshop. And I stayed there on my own for three and a half years. You know, no toilet, no heating, no water, just, and I had rats running around the floor, but I kept making cars. And, um, you know, I really kind of jumped with both feet into being a car builder. Um, but the good thing was, is, you know, I taught myself loads of skills over the, over the years. And I managed to get paid for that. And of course, back then, I didn't really understand it. I massively undervalued my abilities. So I wasn't charging the right money, but I was making enough. I didn't have massive overheads. I didn't have massive, you know, there was no staff costs. There was no you know, big rent costs. So I managed to kind of 
set, you know, lock myself down for a few years and really just make a go of it. I'd build a car, restore it, sell it, make some profit, buy some equipment. And, you know, that cycle would continue. And by the time I'd, um, you know, I was approached by Channel 4, I'd built hundreds of cars and done lots of other stuff. And it kind of felt like, wow, this is really cool. I'm now ready. And I'd never, ever expected or intended to do any TV. You know, I never, it, was, it wasn't even on my radar. Um, and, you know, I got a knock on the door from a production company one morning saying, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're putting together a new car show with a, a very famous host, an A-list actor. And um, we've, we've been going out to the market looking for somebody to be an, kind of in the sort of back mechanic. So it wasn't a host role. It was a kind of an on-screen mechanic. And, you know, we've been looking around and we don't want anyone that's specific to a car. We don't want an, a Jaguar expert or a Ford expert. We want someone that's worked on lots of different cars and is, you know, is articulate and will get on with the actor. And, and um, your name keeps coming up because we, we talk to collectors and they say, well, actually, Ant's probably good at that. And then we talked to another company and they said, well, what about this guy in Hertfordshire? So they came to visit and I had this sort of second turning point in my life. I treat the 2005 police turning point as a, um, I was sort of forced by violence to make a decision. And then the, the, the TV turning point by saying I was just presented and tossed a coin. Hmm. And I, I went into London, I met this team of producers and executives and they sat on this huge table. I walked in on my own and was like, okay, what do you want guys? And they said, you know, we think you'd be really good on telly. Here's a contract. You need to let us know by Friday. We recommend you get an agent. Of course, I didn't get an agent, but I said yes. I didn't even open the contract. I said, yeah, I've, I've, been, uh, you know, I've been led by my instincts and gut a lot in my life. And I, I said yes. And, and um, it's probably the best thing I've ever done. And again, you know, I then zoomed forward to you know, joining Wheeler Dealers three and a half years ago. It, again, it, it could have gone either way. You know, I could have said yes, and I could have said no. I could have stayed in the UK and carried on doing what I was doing. You know, they wanted, they wanted to make more for the love of cars. I was now doing other TV shows for BBC. So there was loads of opportunity around. And um, yeah, I, I remember sitting on the bed at home one evening with my family, and we literally said, I, you know, the vote is ours. There's four of us. The vote is ours, and I abstain. And my daughter put her hand up and said, I vote yes. You only regret the chances you don't take. She's quite wise, my daughter. <laughs> and then yeah, my, son Archie, my son Archie just burst into tears and said, whatever Emily says, I agree. <laughs> so two to one, done. Do you think that your decision to join the police in the first place was maybe a failing on your route into careers at the time and the failing of perhaps our industry to make you recognise as a young man that your love of cars could give you a career in the automotive industry? Well, that is probably the best question I've ever been asked. I mean, it really truly is. And actually, there's two ways to tackle that question. Firstly, I sit here today absolutely, utterly convinced that my police training uh, experience, dealing with everything that I did in the police, and you know, you can imagine there's been some harrowing events, some overwhelming events, that has absolutely made me a TV host. Being in the police is actually directly related to hosting TV. I mean, you turn up to a drunk, you know, on your own to a group of guys being violent and aggressive. You have to come up, you have to present. You have to host the show, own, own that moment. And it gives you a sense of perspective. I did, I've done a lot of live shows and I always say to myself, well, he hasn't got a gun. <laughs> like, no one's going to die here. And it, you know, so I, I truly believe that. But to answer the second half of your question, you know, we talk about it. We hear in our community words like dying industry dying trades, craftsmen are being lost, People, you know, the, these English wheelers are just getting older and older, and actually that's kind of true. And you know, we, we need to, as a, particularly as a British industry, we need to harness the fact that we have this heritage and we need to celebrate that heritage. You can make a career building cars. And when you look at, um, when you look at the fact that classic cars are today the world's biggest grossing economy, they are, they are more um, valuable in terms of returns than oil or gas or even property. Mm. Now, if you said to most people, if you could wind the clock back, what would you do? They'd all go, well, I'd have bought houses. I could have bought a house in Kensington for 100 grand 20 years ago, and it's worth 50 million now. But you could have bought a Ferrari 250 GTO for eight grand, and it's worth 72 million now. Classic cars are the highest grossing commodity on the planet. 
And there's a real kind of value for that craft. You know, you wouldn't bat an eyelid if you went to a, a, a company and said, here's 50 grand, make me one body. Here's 20 grand, rebuild that engine. Here's 10 grand, paint that car. And, you know, we need to, you know, make sure that young apprentices know this. They need to know that, you know, there is a career in this world. We do have a responsibility to keep British heritage, British craft, British skill, keep them going. And particularly when you consider we're entering a changing world. We're about to enter a world where governments and um, people in authority are saying no more fuel, no more petrol. By X date, you're only allowed to manufacture electric vehicles, which, by the way, I'm absolutely all for. But it doesn't lose the fact that these classic cars will still exist. If anything, it makes them more valuable. It makes them more passionate. And, you know, those classics will always need a service to support them. Something needs to do better to tell kids that there is a career in this passion. And if you can, if you can find a job that's your hobby, yeah, you'll never work. If you simplify a career path for somebody, explain it in those steps in detail, they'll understand it and they'll go off. If you want to be a doctor, you actually know absolutely what the path is. I need to do my A-levels and I need to go to university for three years and specialize. I need to go do a master's and, you know, there, and then do a doctorate. If you're a lawyer, you understand. I need to go and do my law degree. Then I need to do a BVC to become a barrister. Or, you know, you, there is a clear path. And because our industry is so varied, I, I, you know, I, I feel like it just needs to be simplified. You need to say to these kids, yes, if you want to be a doctor, here's your path. If you want to be a lawyer, here's your path. If you want to be a chef, here's your path. Plumber. But if you want to be a, a car builder, here's the start point. But from that start point, the opportunity is massive. You know, I've said it for years. I've always had difficulty um, in auto electrics. Getting a really good auto electrician is actually quite tricky. Electrics, when you boil it down, are quite simple. And if somebody's given that foundation, that learning, and they chose to you know, niche into auto-electrics, I, I can't imagine there'd ever be a scenario where they wouldn't work. So tell us about the car company that you have now and what you're building now. Aside from Wheeler Dealers, you're still very much involved in the car industry. What are you creating currently, Ant? Uh, Specialised in uh, uh, replicas. So I built a lot of recreations. And I found that you know, it was quite a, it was a really lovely niche to sit in because, you know, the cars are obviously iconic and beautiful. And I made uh, uh, modern day versions of you know, 1950s icons. It was quite cool. Um, and I made a decision five or six years ago that I won't be doing any more replicas, that I wanted to create something of my own. So I set up a separate, a completely new business called Dowsett's. Dowsett's Classic Cars, because it's based on Dowsett's farm. And at the time I was doing two replicas, one with no roof, one with a roof. So I designed my own car, one with a roof, one with no roof. And um, so Dowsett's does, effectively Dowsett's does four things right now. Uh, Dowsett's does restorations. And weirdly, because I spoke to the team last week, over the last few months, they've really been focusing on Porsche. And I think it's strange because the Porsche community, uh, obviously, if you have your Porsche done and it's good, you tell your Porsche mate. And I think that's what's happened is that we've just generated a lot of Porsche things. Um, I'd love to do more MGs actually. So we do, on, on one arm, we do uh, restorations. On the second arm, uh, we build brand new vehicles. So we're in this kind of really unique boys club in the UK. There's not many people in our club. You know, businesses like Aerial or Caterham or Morgan, you know, this kind of low volume British car company that when you get the logbook, it says the name of our business on it. We are a manufacturer. So we build brand new turnkey cars for customers all over the world. Um, and we're just about to re I, I, I've kind of rechanged the business in the last few months and we're just about to launch uh, a partnership here in California uh, with uh, EV West so we will be offering our cars in electric both in California and in the UK um, because you know having a kind of a modern electric but on a classic styled and handling car is there's something in that and you know we will be a, a mainstream manufacturer we are a mainstream manufacturer so that's the second string to our bow. The third string is a new project that's coming out that I haven't actually spoken about. Um, when I grew up, um, I was inspired by a, uh, an author called Ron Champion. Ron Champion wrote a book with Haynes called How to Build a Sports Car. And they did various versions of that. They started off with a Cortina donor. 
then no Cortinas were available. So they re-edited it to a Sierra. And now no Sierras are, are available. And Haynes and I got our heads together about 18 months ago and said, wow, Ron Champion's book is a, is a big deal. And culturally, you know, the low-cost craze demand, you know, commanded you know, a decade, 15 years, you know, created a one-mate race series, you know, 50-car grids, um, huge amount of uh, owners' clubs, forums, and it actually supported a load of small businesses. You now had businesses making chassis for Ron Champion's book. And there's, you know, there's many still going. That Lotus 7-style car is hugely popular. But ultimately, there's been a kind of a lag. There's been a gap. What is the low cost? What is the Ron Champion of, of the last decade? There isn't one. Yeah. So Haynes and I got our heads together about 18 months ago. And I have already written the book. I've already built the car. Um, I've used uh, Mark II Mazda MX-5 as the donor. And I've created a new Haynes How to Build Your Car because I want to inspire kids and adults. I want to inspire everybody to go home and build their own car. So what Dowsitz is doing is it's offering the support. We were going to launch it at the NEC in March, but obviously because of Corona, it was cancelled. The NEC was moved to August, so we were going to launch it in August, but it looks like we're likely to launch it in November. Um, so it'll be a new book with Haynes, a step-by-step, picture-led guide, how to build a car from scratch. You know, Ron Champion really captured that moment. Well, hopefully your book will do just the same as his original did to inspire people. And of course, you do that through your uh, work on Wheeler Dealers with uh, our mate, Mike Brewer, of course. And uh, do you, you now spend basically every day of your life staring into a camera talking about what you're doing to a particular car and explaining the process behind it. How's the fact that you do that every single day and spend so long explaining to a camera how to take certain things apart? Has that actually changed the way you work on cars as well? It probably has, yeah. I like to think, um, you know, one of my real kind of passions, particularly on TV, is to take a complicated subject and to simplify it. And what I found, my, my life experience tells me is that the answer is usually a simple thing. Mm. And if you break down even the most complex science or engineering, once you actually break it down into bite-sized portions, it, it's quite achievable. And the thing about cars is there's the similarity in cars. You know, they've all got a steering wheel. They've all got four wheels. They need suspension. They normally you know, have a, it's a chassis or a monocoque. You know, there's this kind of simplicity to it. And I, I think a lot of people don't get that. So I've, my biggest joy is that I get to simplify complicated subjects so that not, you know, people that aren't necessarily engineering-led or car-focused can understand it. And I love it when you know, people, I particularly love it when you, know, particularly, you, know, you can picture a husband and wife watching it at home and the husband's watching Wheeler Dealers because he you know, likes the show, he understands the brand, and the wife goes, oh, I get it now, I know how Turbo works. And the husband's like, what? This is amazing, you're a keeper. <laughs> right? So, um, so yeah, what I guess it's taught me is that you know, even if you're faced with the biggest issue and this car is troubling you, is ultimately do it as if it's a TV show. Let's, okay, let's break it down. Let's simplify this. Let's arrive at the, the answer by going through a series of problem solving. Mm. And that's, you know, again, it takes me back to the police. That's exactly how the police works. You assess the evidence and you take things slowly and you arrive at the answer and ultimately you get there in the end. So, mm. yeah, it's yeah. kind of weird, isn't it? Because we're in this, we're in this unique moment in time where content is so digestible it's so there's a huge appetite for it as well and it varies from hollywood movies to you know budget youtube car influencers and you know wheeler dealers probably fall somewhere in the middle you know it's not overproduced it's not underproduced there's still a bit of quality there's still a bit of take home there's an established format this is how the show works and how it needs to work and um it's it's amazing it's been it's going you know entering 18 years is remarkable and it stands testament to how popular the show is no, it's really kind of cool. I know you're a busy man and you've got cars to fix and you've got Mike Brewer to send on another mission for more parts. So we'll let you get back to it. And thank you very, very much for coming on to the MG Car Club podcast. It's great to see you. Oh, what a pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at the NEC. MG Car Club podcast. Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at MGCC .co.uk Well, at the MG Car Club, we always like to make sure that you're well-stocked with good merchandise 
to buy for your MG or for you or for anyone in your family who's mad about MGs. So we always like to keep you updated with what Inuka's got new in the shop in Kimber House. And uh, it is a veritable Aladdin's treasure trove in there, isn't it, at Kimber House? If no one's ever been, just ex- just describe what you see when you walk in the front door because the shop is the first area that you enter, isn't it? It's amazing in there. Yeah, so it's uh, we refer to it as Kimber Stores. Um, so, um, yeah, so you come into Kimber House and you'll be greeted by either myself or Inika or Colin. Um, and the first thing you'll see is the club shop. And it's, yeah, like you say, it's a treasure trove. There's all sorts of really lovely stuff there that is ideal for, you know, anyone in the family that's into MG, for yourself, you want to splash out and treat yourself or... Or you've you know you've got a friend in the club or a friend who who would love something MG related. So there's there's everything there that you could uh, you could want. It's all quality merch, quality merch, and so many model cars, so many model cars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like getting cross legged on the carpet and getting some out for a play. Honestly, <laughs> there's that many in there. But uh, I, I got a message here from Inika, who runs the MG Car Club shop. She is the lovely lady that you will speak to if you ring the shop, by the way. Uh, And she says, uh, about the podcast, Adam, she says, I can't believe you two love to talk so much. I can't (laughs) believe she's shocked at that, to be quite honest with you. It wouldn't be a very good podcast if we didn't talk. No, no, it uh, it would be a very brief episode, wouldn't it? And very quiet yes uh what she got in then let's have a look at this well she's got and this confused me when i first saw it uh but it's it's a brilliant piece to have actually as we're getting into those nice summer months when you need to get yourself stuff for those balmy summer evenings where you drop the roof on the mg and you go for a good old blast down the lanes and you know you might just want to pop into a secluded spot for a romantic picnic well we've got just the thing if you're going to do that and that is the mg car club 90th anniversary pillow blanket yes yeah, i didn't so know what a pillow blanket was either adam explain <laughs> so it's quite simple really wayne it's a bit like me it's quite simple it's um it's basically uh, a blanket inside a 90th anniversary embroidered case so when you unzip it you can pull it out and you've got a picnic blanket um that you can you can enjoy a, as you say a romantic uh, a romantic picnic on or if you're on your todd um you've got a nice comfy pillow to sit on when you're at a show or you know heaven forbid you find yourself in a lay-by somewhere trying to get your car going um so yeah it's a really handy little thing it's and it's yeah it's nice it's really nice and it's a little over 20 quid if you wanted a pillow and a blanket you just buy two exactly why wouldn't you and then one day you'll have two blankets as well if you need them and then you've got one to lie on and one to cover yourself over with it's pure genius see they're available now on the mg car club shop best way to find them is to put in blanket that's how i found them on the search bar there shop.mgcc.co.uk you can find them there it's the mgcc anniversary pillow blanket i like it and uh, we've also got some new stickers in um, my favorites amongst the stickers these are just the window stickers that you put in your car everyone's got to have window stickers by the way if you own an 80s mg if you're rocking around in an mg metro or a, an mg montego firstly if you've got an mg montego you're my hero and secondly you need stickers in the window that's what people did in the 80s they were plastered with stickers in the window and uh, you can get these from the mg car club shop as well built in abingdon restored at home nice i like that one my other car is an mg that's the sticker for the daily isn't it yeah well my daily happens to be an mg so my my g you know sarah's gs has a sticker in the back that says my other car is an mg which can only just serve to confuse people you could do with some that say also mg perhaps i don't know i'm just complicating things now and uh, a sticker that has multiple applications i would suggest but we're suggesting you use it in your mg and that is a sticker that says your mother wouldn't like it well that's the iconic tagline from the the 70s uh, sports car ads isn't it so uh, yeah everyone everyone remembers your mother wouldn't like it so yeah it's a it's fitting in the back of any mg it turns out in our case adam your mother did like it and it's because she liked it so much that we're here indeed (laughs) (laughs) and also this is very exciting we've now gone into uh, household accessories Uh, forget your dunelm or any of that sort of stuff forget your ikea if you need a new doormat come to the mg car club 
and uh, we've got a doormat here that says mg only on it they're new in actually these ones and they're a doormat that says mg only in big bold lettering this is the only thing you need to be having outside your front door if you're an mg fan isn't it adam have you got yours yet I have, but mainly because the last time you were around here, you dragged so much mud through my house. It took me weeks to get the carpets clean. So, uh, so yeah, so we've uh, we've invested in some good quality MG doormats, so that if you've got some muppet like you that comes around your house and drags mud all through the house, you can stop them uh, with our wonderful MG doormats. I think I'm, I think I'm being wrongly accused. I always take my <laughs> shoes off at the door. I plead innocence. <laughs> but no, they're really nice, actually. And they're just 15 quid. And we can post them out to you. They're very easy to order online. Shop.mgcc.co.uk. MG only doormats. They're proper good quality stuff as well. A great addition to your porch or your front door. Have a look at them. Shop.mgcc.co.uk. Wow. Episode 10, Adam. It's a wrap, mate. We've done 10 episodes of the MG Car Club podcast. Where are we going to go next, apart from episode 11? Of course, we'd like to hear from you on episode 11. If you wouldn't mind getting in touch, you can do that really easily. Go to mgpodcast.uk, go to the contact form there, and not only can you write out your message to us using the contact form, but you can also come on the show by the medium of technology. All you have to do is click the voice message button on there and you can leave a voice message really easily if you're using a mobile phone or a laptop or any computer and we'll get you on the show. Leave us a message, tell us a story about your MG, whatever you like to do, we'd love to hear from you. mgpodcast.uk Until our next episode, we'll see you then. Cheerio. Cheers, guys. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk